Praise God. Well, what a wonderful title, The Messiahship of Jesus. And so this is very much at the heart of the Bible, really. It's heart of the whole revelation of the Bible. So I couldn't really uh, pick a more, well, we, we couldn't pick a more important subject. So let us um, just make it clear. I'm sure you, you will know some of these things, but uh, hopefully you'll, you'll also learn a few things as well. The word Messiah is the, the, has the, the Greek equivalent word is Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're really saying Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah means the anointed one. Uh, in the Old Testament, there would be different ones who were anointed of the Holy Spirit, because basically you can only do God's work by the anointing of God. And primarily it was prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. But the, the Old Testament prophecies Look, looked at a certain person who would come, God's champion, who would be the fulfillment of all, all these anointings. So individual men had an anointing, but the Messiah would have the total anointing. He, he would come for our salvation and to establish God's kingdom. He would be anointed as the prophet and the priest and, and the king and uh, in, a, in an absolute way, um, without measure. Um, and so all the, all the prophets, priests, and kings, which is miniature pictures, really, of, of God's ultimate prophet, priest, and king. It's interesting that in his first coming, Jesus, first of all, for the three and a half years, he was anointed to be the prophet. And he fulfilled the ministry of a prophet, which is to, to really uh, bring God's word uh, to man. Um, and then just shortly before his death, he moved into his anointing to be priest to, in order to offer up himself as a sacrifice unto God. And so he, he did that. And he now is still in the ministry of a priest for he ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek and um, praise God. And he in revelation one when he appeared to john he was dressed in the clothing of of the high priest um and when jesus returns when he's now seated at the right hand of god but when he gets up to to return he will start he will operate in the ministry of the king so in revelation 19 in the second coming we see that jesus returns as the king of kings Praise God. And then he will rule as king over the earth for, for a thousand years and, uh, and throughout eternity. And so he is the prophet, priest, and king. An interesting little uh, thing to notice is that God spoke three times out of heaven. God the Father spoke out of heaven to endorse the Son and to authorize the Son, really, um, saying, this is my beloved Son. Uh, in whom uh, I'm well pleased, for example, listen to him. And we, will, we see at first time, of course, at his baptism, and that was in connection with his uh, authorizing him into his ministry as a prophet. Then um, a bit out of sequence, but we'll, uh, we'll understand why when we come to that a bit later, uh, at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, God again speaks out of heaven, saying, this is my beloved son. 
and this time it's in in connection with him being the king what we're going to see is that the transfiguration is a prophetic preview of jesus in his kingdom uh, to peter confirms that so um that was as it were a picture of his divine authorization as king uh, in his kingdom and then there's also in john i think roughly around um oh you know i'm not i think it's john 12 uh shortly before his uh, final hours um the father speaks again out of heaven and that is i believe timed because at that point his public ministry as a prophet ended and at that point he moved into his priesthood and so that word from heaven was was signaling that he was now going to move and offer himself up on the cross as a sacrifice and um really the the remaining teaching in john 14 to 17 is is really to to, to do with his priesthood and the new covenant that he would bring to pass through his death and resurrection and so forth so that the that's the basic a quick summary of the function of the messiah i want to before we look at matthew 16 and the, the fulfillment if you like in jesus we i want to look at two dualities that really summarize the most important uh, aspects of jesus uh, yeshua as the messiah uh, the first one is that the, the Old Testament prophecies, and we're going to look at them, some of them, first of all, um, that say that the Messiah is both God and man. He's fully God and fully man. And this is, of course, we know that's true in the New Testament about, about Yeshua, but this is clear in the Old Testament prophecies, because the Messiah is the Savior, and he has to be both God and man and uh when jesus was claiming to be god and man the unique god man he was claiming to be the messiah the fulfillment of these biblical prophecies and uh, really the jewish leaders were wrong to you know say he's blaspheming how dare you as a man call yourself god because actually uh, of course, that would be true if, uh, in most cases, but in the case of the Messiah, it's clear in their own prophecies that the Messiah is the God-man, and therefore there, there is a man who is also God, uh, and uh, we know his, his name is, is Yeshua. Um, so uh, it's necessary that the Messiah is man because he had to become a man to be our redeemer. There, a redeemer, the Gael uh, in, in the Hebrew, means a relative. Uh, a redeemer has to be someone who can relate and identify with uh, those he is redeeming. And so in order to save us and redeem us, uh, the Lord had to become a man because only that way could he identify with us and be our substitute, take our sins on himself and suffer the death for us and also to to represent us before god and and to bring many sons to glory he had to become a man um but he also had to be god himself because uh basically we were in such trouble we were so messed up that nothing less than god could possibly save us uh 
Um, you know, we were under the dominion of sin, Satan, the curse from hell, the kingdom of darkness. Only God could possibly save us. And Jonah declared in Jonah 2.9, he says, salvation is of the Lord, Jehovah. Uh, only God can save. All right. No angel could have saved us. Only God can save. And he made that clear, actually. That's quite an important verse in Isaiah 43.11 says, I, even I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. So th to be a save, to be the savior. He had to be the Lord. Um, and, and that is essential to salvation, that, that Jesus is the Savior. So when the New Testament claims that Jesus is the Savior, that, of course, uh, means he must be God. Um, and, of course, his name, Yeshua, is the Lord, uh, the, the Lord our Savior, Yeshua. Uh, and so in order to be our Savior, he had to be both God and man another way to think about it is god and man are totally separated so we needed a mediator to bring us back to god and a mediator has to represent stand in the middle and jesus was the perfect mediator because he was both god and man he could bring man and god together in himself and so uh as God, he could represent God to man. As man, he can represent man to God. And it also meant that he, God could cut a covenant in the body of Jesus, a perfect covenant. And the reason why the new covenant is so perfect and unbreakable is that it's a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Cut in the body, in the human body of the Son. Uh, praise God. So what that means is it's a perfect, unbreakable covenant. And because Jesus was also man, it means that he can represent us before God. And it, when we accept Christ as our head, we are taken out of Adam. We are put into Christ. We are now in the son. And that means we are in that unbreakable covenant. And it was made possible through the humanity of Jesus Christ. So it's very important to understand that the the Messiah is the God man. Let's have a look at some of the prophecies that, that emphasize this. And of course, sadly, present day Judaism um, does not uh, recognize this essential truth. And so these are some of the most important scriptures really in in, in witnessing to Jews, I would say. Well, the very first messianic prophecy is Genesis 3:15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first, as it were, gospel verse in the Bible given by God just after man sinned. And he, it's actually spoken to Satan. So just when Satan thought he had the victory, God uh, immediately put him in his place and told him, actually, no, uh, you are doomed. <laughs> Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So it's talking about a spiritual warfare going on between Satan and, and the woman, which is interesting. And between your seed, Satan's seed, and that would be really everyone in Satan's kingdom, his angels and his uh, human beings. And it's interesting, on the other side of this warfare is her seed, the seed of the woman. 
and this is the first reference to the Messiah. And praise God. In a sense, we're in there in the sense that when you accept Christ, you are put in Christ. You are put in the seed of the woman. So um, praise God. We, we are the body of Christ. And that's the mystery, really, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. But anyway, it, then it describes the, this warfare and it says he, the, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Or really it is he will crush your head, just like crushing uh, the head of the serpent. Christ will crush and defeat Satan. But in the process, he will be bruised in the heel. He will be bitten by the snake in the heel. And this is a prediction of the coming champion who would crush Satan under his foot and so destroy his power over mankind. But at the same time, he'd be bit by the serpent, receiving his deadly poison within himself. That is, Jesus took the sin of the human race upon himself that, that originated with Satan. And, and so, praise God, he took that when he died on the cross. But then in his victorious resurrection, praise God, he crushed the devil under his feet. And now he has all authority in heaven and earth. And this, it's interesting that this champion is described as the seed of the woman, which means he'll have no human father. Um, and that, that, of course, is the prophecy of the virgin birth. And since the sin nature is transmitted from Adam through the man, this means, unlike the rest of the human race, he'll be born without sin. And, but the other implication is that since he has no human father, God himself must be his father. In other words, that he will be the son of God. And that's one of the titles of the Messiah, that he is the son of God. Um, and he will be, therefore, divine himself. It's, it's really a hint that he will be God manifest in the flesh and actually this is what eve believed because it's interesting that when she uh, named her first son cain she got it wrong by the way but when she uh, had gave birth to cain genesis 4 1 our translations sadly uh, mis uh, mistranslate really it says now adam and eve knew his wife uh, sorry, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And it sounds, you know, that is, you know, she's giving God the credit. But the translation is wrong because you'll notice in some Bibles, uh, the from is in italics. In other words, it's not there in the original. Literally, it is, I have acquired a man, even the Lord. In other words, she was hoping that uh, the promise of Genesis 3.15 was going to come to pass uh, very quickly. And um, she jumped the gun, really, um, thinking may maybe this is Cain. Maybe he is the Lord manifest in the flesh. Well, it didn't take long before she realized he wasn't the sinless Messiah, but he was a naughty little boy. So... But even then, she had the belief, you see, that the Messiah would be the Lord himself in human flesh. Then, of course, um, Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. Notice, it doesn't say a virgin. It says the virgin. And it's a reference to Genesis 3, 15. The virgin 
shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. We know that that was fulfilled by Yeshua. But again, that's a statement that this, this human son born of a virgin will actually be also God. This is essential, really, foundation of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is, is God as well as man. Fully God and fully man. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. That's his humanity. But then it says, unto us a son is given. That's his deity, you see, because he was the pre-existent eternal son of God before his birth. And he was given to us. That means he existed already. And so here it puts the two together. He is both man and God. And the government will be on his shoulder and his name. And that name means his nature will be called wonderful. And that means miracle worker. So this is saying that the Messiah will have a miracle ministry. Uh, counselor. He will be the greatest teacher ever. Mighty God, El Gibor. That's very clear, isn't it? That is a plain statement that he's God. Mighty God. Uh, by the way, the Jehovah Witnesses say, oh, he's a mighty God. But that's totally wrong because it's a name for God. It's El Gibor. And in the next chapter of Isaiah, you can check it out in Isaiah 10, 21. Um, the very same name is used, El Gibor, where it says the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And the JWs would agree that that's talking about Jehovah there. So why isn't it talking about Jehovah in Isaiah 9, 6? And then it says he's the everlasting father, which actually I would translate as the source, the father or the source of everlasting life and the prince of peace. Praise God. Um, it's important. I know you know some of these prophecies well, but uh, it's important to really have a strong grasp of the prophecies that prove that the messiah is god um, micah 5 2 of course you know bethlehem Ephrathah. though you're little among the thousands of judah yet out of you will come forth unto me the one to be ruler in israel whose goings forth whose origins uh, are of old from everlasting so here it talks about a baby that will be born in bethlehem a human child but his origins are from eternity. In other words, he is God. And of course, that is one of the ones chosen in the New Testament to, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Praise God. Um, it, also, uh, one, a couple more. Um, I think Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. And, and whenever you hear about the branch, of course, that's talking about his humanity. He will be born as the son of David. He is uh, a branch means, you know, he's 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 the offspring uh, in, in, a, in a human uh, genealogy. The branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper, executing judgment and righteousness on the earth. Again, the Messiah being king. And then verse, uh, the next verse says, 
um, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkin. The Lord is our right. That's a divine title, of course. The Lord, our righteousness. So this one who is a branch, who is a human branch, son of David, is also the, uh, the Lord, Jehovah. And, um, you know, this is a name of God. And if he were not God, he would not be allowed to have the name Jehovah. Um, this is another key verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that's Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory, that includes his name, I will not give to another. He will not give his glory to another. He will not allow someone else to be called Jehovah who is not Jehovah himself. And Jesus is called Jehovah. So we must be Jehovah God. Um, praise God. And, uh, and, and there are many prophecies, by the way, uh, of, of the Messiah being God. I'm just giving you uh, a few. I think I'll just give you one more. Uh, and that is Psalm 110. Um, very much quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord. Now it's here. It's interesting. It says the Lord that the first Lord is Jehovah. Said to my Lord is Adoni. Uh, that is um, accepted that that this is talking about the Messiah, who is seated at the right hand of Jehovah. Um, now the word Adoni could refer to God, but or it could refer to someone who is very exalted. Um, and so that that it's still an open issue there whether the the second lord is is god himself but we're going to see in verse five the issue is settled but anyway sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool and so that's clearly the exaltation of the messiah to the uh, to the right hand of god and um it's interesting that uh, Jesus' favorite names for himself were the Son of God and the Son of Man, because he's fully God and fully man. He was claiming both. And uh, in particular, it's interesting that this prophecy was fulfilled in Psalm 110 in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which describes the Son of Man ascending to uh, and coming to the throne in the clouds of glory and receiving a kingdom that will last forever. He receives authority from the throne. This happened at the ascension of Christ, that the Son of Man, in other words, he had lived a perfect human life, and now he is resurrected and exalted, and he ascends to the throne of God, to the throne of his Father, and that then he received all authority from that throne. And he then sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then it talks about um, a, a period of time between the first and second comings of Christ, um, which we're going to talk about in a minute, when um, that we understand now is the time we're living in the church age. He says, the Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. So in this period of time, 
um, the enemies of God are still active, but Christ will rule uh, from his from his throne. Uh, but it, it it isn't the time yet for the for the judgment of his enemies. In fact, he's told to sit there until it's time to put the enemies under his feet. So it isn't time yet. I believe that time begins uh, at the rapture because at during the tribulation, um, that's when uh, that time of putting his enemies underfoot begins. But in during that time, it describes us now in verse three, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And the picture here is of a holy priesthood, um, um, volunteers offering themselves to God to be, as it were, channels of his power in the earth. And, the, and this is the, the church. And um, God actually reign, rules through his church at this time in the presence of the enemies. And then the Lord has sworn, verse four, and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that, of course, Jesus is now the king priest. And then verse five is really where I'm heading to. The Lord at is at your right hand and and first of all i got confused here because the lord um the word for lord here is adonai now adonai is only used um for god so when it says the lord is at your right hand in that verse it's definitely talking about god but again it's confusing because it's talking about the messiah and saying that god is at his right hand but in the first verse, it says that he is at the right hand of God. So we, we, is that's, that, that bothered me because I, I'm somebody who likes to look at the details of things. Um, but actually, the word is is not there in the original. All right. It's in italics. So actually, it should read the Lord at your right hand. In other words, it's talking about um, the one at the right hand is Adonai. Who is at the right hand in verse one? It's the Messiah, the exalted Messiah, who we know is the man, is a man. But here it says in verse five, the one at the right hand is Adonai. In other words, he is God. And this is talking about Jesus Christ as we read on. If you notice, it's talking about his second coming, when he will come as king of kings and he will execute it says he will execute kings in the day of his wrath that's the second coming he's going to judge all the kingdoms of this world in order to establish his kingdom he will judge among the nations he will fill the places with dead bodies he will execute the heads of many countries and so on so here you see in psalm 110 the messiah is both man and god the god man is seated at the right hand of God. So that's the first duality I, I wanted to, to present is that the Messiah is both God and man. And the New Testament, you know, declares that about Jesus, that he is both God and man. And it is, it is vital that we believe for our salvation. It is vital that we believe that Jesus is both God and man. In Romans, 
chapter uh, 10, you know, it says that the classic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. And, and that means more than just the fact that, you know, Jesus is my boss. Um, Jesus is above me in authority. Uh, it means more than that. It's talking about absolute lordship. He, he has the authority that only God has. He is absolute Lord. You see, that's why the early Christians were persecuted and killed, because they declared Jesus as Lord. If they were just honoring him as an exalted person in their life, that wouldn't have brought on their persecution. Uh, that would have been allowed. In fact, the Romans believed in many, many gods. But what they were saying is Jesus is, you know, they were saying, look, we'll obey you, Caesar, as someone who's above us in authority, you know. But they weren't saying just that they consider Jesus to be high in authority. They were saying that Jesus is the supreme authority. And that's what offended Caesar. He, he was saying, all, he is above all other so-called gods. He is the supreme authority. He is God. And that is the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. And of course, it follows from that, that he is my Lord, that I submit to his authority. That is the characteristic of saving faith. And um, later in John, in Romans 10, verse 13 it says whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved and clearly it's talking about jesus whoever calls on the name of the lord jesus shall be saved but that is a quotation from joel 2:32, which says all who call on the name of jehovah shall be saved so what romans is doing is taking a verse that applies to jehovah and only to Jehovah, it would be blasphemous to apply it to someone who's not Jehovah, as we said. And he's applying this phrase to, to Jesus. And so this is saying Jesus is, or Yeshua is, Jehovah. Um, I say Jehovah because that's the English way of saying it. It would pr it's probably more like Jehovah or Yahweh. But if you don't mind, I'll just stick with Jehovah for now. Uh, it was the English language brought in that hard J that, that really isn't there in the original. So it's more like Jehovah or Yahweh. The problem is that the, the Jewish people considered the name so holy that they stopped pronouncing it. It wasn't allowed to pronounce it in case they got it wrong and, and the, the desecrate the name. So they didn't know which vowel points to put in between the consonants. And so that's why there are different versions, depending on what vowels you, you put in there. So I think a lot of people think it's Yahweh, uh, but it could be Jehovah. But anyway, um, so notice, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Yeshua as Jehovah, as God. Because you, you call on the name of the Lord, God, to be saved. So you have to believe Jesus is is god to be saved and that's the difference with some many false cults is that they will have an exalt or false religions they'll have an exalted view of jesus like islam if you like or other such cults or like, like jehovah witnesses but they they do not accept that he is god and that's 
is is not just a bad mistake it's a damnable heresy it's it's uh, 2 peter 2 1 defines which heresies are damnable heresies he says they deny the lord that bought them so a damnable heresy is one that will cause you to to not be able to receive salvation that will lead to your damnation if you deny that jesus is the lord that he is god and, and that he bought you on the cross that he his perfect finished work on the cross those are the two core issues of the, of the, of the gospel all right so um jesus also said in john 8 um unless you believe that i am you will die in your sins so you have to believe that the messiah jesus is both god and man to to be saved all right so that's that that needed to be said that's very important that we understand the 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 messiah the deity of the messiah now the second duality i want to share with you about the messiah and these i think are the these are the most important things to be said about the messiah is that the prophecies of the messiah are twofold and they are generally known as the sufferings and the glory um and and there are two streams of messianic prophecy uh, and there are two very different kinds of prophecies about the messiah one describes his sufferings for our salvation the other describe his glory as as reigning in glory as the king and they all basically fall into one of those two categories uh, some of course which we are familiar with show the messiah coming in humility suffering and dying for our sins you know isaiah 53 other prophecies show him coming in power and glory you know and reigning and when there is a passage that has both of those images it's always the suffering messiah that is talked described first and then the 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 glory the glorious messiah um, and uh, some jews actually believed because of that there'd be two messiahs one they called the son of joseph the one who would suffer um, and then the other one they called the son of david the kingly desire the uh, messiah but we know that there is only one messiah of course jesus but he fulfills the two sets of prophecies in in two different times in his first coming and then in his second coming um so the first time he came to be the suffering messiah the second time he came to comes to as the glorious king and in that way both of them will be true now to understand why this is necessary we have to understand that in the bible there are two programs of god all right i think a lot of people do not understand this that there are two programs of god which i call the kingdom program of god and the salvation program of god all right we're very aware of god's salvation program most people think that that's pretty much what the bible's about but actually the fundamental program of god is the kingdom program of god that god will establish his kingdom his rule overall um when lucifer sinned originally he set up a counter kingdom and and but man was created to be 
to rule and reign as part of God's kingdom. And so the terrible thing happened when, of course, man sinned. He, he was, a, was a traitor, really. And he swapped kingdoms. He put himself under Satan's authority and he became part of the kingdom of darkness. And so we have a, a, a problem here that um, God's kingdom program is to establish his kingdom overall, but now a third of his angels and all of, his, all of mankind have changed their allegiance into the kingdom of darkness. So what is gonna, God going to do? Now, when, God, um, when this happened, God did not abandon his kingdom program. You see that in Psalm 8, because in Psalm 8, um, there's no reference to man's sin. It, 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 you probably know Psalm 8, you know, how excellent is your name in all the earth uh, when I consider the heavens. And then it goes on about how God put everything under man's feet uh, and crowned him with glory and honor. And this is written thousands of years after the fall of man. And yet God is talking as if it's, it's, it's what God intended in the beginning is going to come to pass. He is going to bring all creation under man. Man will be his, as it were, the ruler under him. And, and of course, Hebrews 2 talks about how that will be fulfilled in Christ. But there is a kingdom program. But the kingdom, what is God going to do now that man has sinned and joined his enemy? God could, just if, if to establish his kingdom, he could have wiped out the human race immediately. All right? And, and said, and just stayed in kingdom mode and moved in judgment. But because of God's love for humanity, he delayed his judgment on man. And this is the long suffering of God. And therefore, he, he has allowed evil to continue. And, um, and what he has done in the meantime, he, he hasn't stopped his kingdom program, but he's, as it were, delayed it to bring in a second program, which is his salvation program that needs significant time to be fulfilled. And so Jesus, uh, so what you see in scripture are these two programs working together. God is moving his kingdom program forward in stages, but it's synchronized with his salvation program. And, and I won't go into the detail of it, but you can track both programs taking place um, through, throughout. Um, so for example, um, at the cross, we primarily think of that in terms of salvation, that, that Jesus died on the cross to save us, to rescue us from the power of sin but it was also an important stage in the kingdom program because he disarmed principalities and powers. He, as a man now, has received all authority in heaven and earth, and the kingdom has moved forward. At the second coming, of course, the kingdom, well, even in the tribulation, and the second coming, the kingdom program is going to be moved forward. But God, um, the reason why he spreads his judgments in the tribulation over at least seven years is in order to save as many people as possible before it's too late. And so you see salvation and kingdom operating together. And then the kingdom will move forward when the millennium kingdom is set up. And then finally in the eternal state, the, where everything now is under the king. 
in in perfect order and harmony and all his enemies are dealt with so you've got these two programs moving forwards and uh, that helps to understand the movement of history the um so god god first of all has to the salvation program kind of has to happen first before the kingdom program because when god moves in judgment then it's too late for anyone to be saved so that's why jesus had to come first um to suffer and die for our salvation before he's going to come a second time as the king of kings to to establish his kingdom on the earth so there's a reason for the two stage coming of christ um these two aspects of christ are summarized by two animals the lamb and the lion in the first coming he came as the lamb of god to for our sins in the second coming he comes as the lion of judah you see um in that there it's symbolized by two sons because first of all the son of abraham which is isaac who was offered up on mount moriah that is a picture of the greater than isaac the the son of abraham the greater than isaac jesus who was also offered up on mount moriah for our sins for our salvation but the second son in scripture is the son of david who is the the victorious um conquering reigning messiah and so the two these two aspects are both fulfilled by the messiah at two two different times so there are two streams of prophecy called the sufferings and the glory and the messiah has will fulfill both of them um and what people now where where we can what we can forget is that these prophecies talk about the messiah coming first to suffer and then enter his glory as king and and we are getting very close to the point i believe where the second set of prophecies are going to be fulfilled praise god we are in the, the signs of the end times are there i believe now jesus when he rose from the dead that's exactly what he taught them on because this is central to everything all right luke 24 verse 25 to 27 jesus said because they you know he says oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken see the problem of the jews uh in you know originally is is that they were because they were under roman oppression they weren't interested in the suffering messiah they were interested in the son of david who would kick butt and deal with the romans and so they were focused on that and so they they thought who is this jesus he's he, he's not the messiah he's not going around killing romans he can't be the messiah uh, because that was their concept of messiah was the son of david and and he says uh and that was even true of course about the disciples themselves that was the concept that they had from you know growing up in the jewish world that the messiah is going to be the reigning messiah and of course that is true um but first he has to come and suffer and die so that's why jesus said 
that they were slow and hot to believe all all that the prophets have spoken in other words you need to look at the suffering passages as well as the glory passages and of course when we read the bible we tend to go for the glory passages more than the suffering passages it's human nature i suppose so ought not he says ought not the christ the messiah first to have suffered these things he says look don't be discouraged you've through his death because this is prophesied that he must die for our sins the messiah had to do that first and then enter into his glory so there are two sets of prophecies jesus had to do the suffering first and then the glory and beginning at moses and all the prophets he expanded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so jesus is claiming here to be the suffering and the glorious messiah um and but this is this is one reason why he was rejected because they were looking for a for a for a king messiah not a suffering messiah but of course we understand he had to do both so to understand prophecy it kind of like it's kind of like looking at two mountains in the i don't know if you've ever kind of gone walking in the you know in the lake district or something like that and you you see two mountains in the distance and you um one in front of the other and you you really can't tell how far apart they are you know whether one's immediately behind the other or whether there's a big distance you cannot see the valley in between and that's what the prophets saw when they looked they saw the first mountain which is the first coming of christ as the suffering messiah and then they saw beyond that to a mountain further in the distance which where where he is the king messiah and but what they couldn't see is the valley in between they, they could not see that and they they did not know how long that period of time would be because god did not reveal that to them and peter talks about this um quite interesting verses here in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 10 he says of this salvation and he's talking about the new covenant salvation and there there were prophecies about the new covenant of course quite a few of them in the in the old covenant of this salvation through the messiah the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you so they prophesied of the messiah they prophesied of the new covenant that he would bring and then it says in verse 11 searching what time or what kind of time the spirit who was in them in was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of christ and the glories that would follow what he's saying is they what they saw clearly was the sufferings of christ and the glories that would follow but they didn't understand the time in between what kind of time it would be or what time how long it would be now we know now it's almost two thousand years but they 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 couldn't know that that was actually the mystery the bible calls that time the mystery of course we know know it now as the church age but that that was a mystery that was hidden um hidden in christ from the foundation of the world but um that is the that is the setting of old testament prophecy that the messiah will actually um both be the suffering messiah 
and the glorious Messiah. And the suffering must come before the glory, and but the time period in between is, is, was not revealed. And, and that, of course, is the time that we live in now. All right, having laid that groundwork, how are we doing on time? Um, having laid that groundwork, let us go now to Matthew chapter 16 and uh, look at the key passage, perhaps, on the Messiahship of Jesus. And Jesus sometimes, you know, he actually kind of avoided using the word Christ too much because, um, and sometimes he even said, don't, don't tell them that I'm the Christ, you know, and that's, uh, people are wondering what, what, what is that? I think it simply is that that was an emotionally worded, uh, loaded word in those times because the Jewish, in what they hear is he's this political leader because all the false Jewish messiahs like Bar Kokhba were actually um, military people, you know, people, uh, you know, rebelling against the Romans and so on and trying to bring in the Jewish kingdom by force. And that was their concept of what the Christ should be. And therefore, Jesus didn't want them to give that impression. So he often used different words to describe himself um but he was careful in in the use of the word christ because of it of the overtones of that time that that's my explanation of that but let's go to matthew 16 verse 13 and uh this is of course a key turning point in the gospels a major uh about six months before the cross no yes six months before the cross around about when jesus came into the region of caesarea philippi God chose this place, Caesarea Philippi, in the, in the north of Galilee. Uh, and that, in fact, when I take Israel trips, I always go there. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful location. It is at the foothill of Mount Hermon. Um, and in the Bible, Mount Hermon plays uh, a key role. Uh, and it is used as a holy mountain, actually. And the River Jordan actually originates from Mount Hermon and the waters from Mount Hermon, which is snow-capped, flow down and they come out at, uh, at Dan, but also at Caesarea Philippi, which is also known as Banias. And so in, there is a large rock there and uh, there's a cave that's called the Gates of Hell. And um, there's this river that, that flows out from, from the rock, which is that the at the base of Mount Hermon. And um, the Greeks, when they invaded the area, they, they used that, this very lot of wonderful nature and the whole setting, they, they thought this, this is such a beautiful place. It shows the sign of the, the god Pan. They god Pan, kind of half goat, half man. Um, and so this was the center of worship for the god Pan. Um, and uh, that's why it's called Banias. Um, but also, all kinds of other temples were erected there. So it was a whole place full of idolatry along that rock face. There was a temple to Zeus. There was a temple. Well, you you name it. There was a temple to. And there was a temple to the emperor, and so on. So it was a real kind of religious center there. And um, Jesus chose this place interestingly and i explain it in much more detail uh, in my book 
revelations at Caesarea Philippi. But this is where Jesus chose to reveal who he is in a very direct way and to reveal the church, to reveal what was going to happen in that mystery time period between the first and the second comings. All right. So Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Of course, this is the big question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? That is the question that every human being must answer. And in fact, if you're witnessing, that's a great way to start the conversation. Just to say, you know, who do you say Jesus is? All right. And see what they say and then take it from there, because that is the key question. That's the thing to focus people on. And of course, the disciples gave the different theories, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, so on. And then Jesus turned it on them. But who do you say that I am? Because this is the core issue. Who is Jesus? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You see, now Jesus hadn't been using that word too much. He'd been using all kinds of other words and he expected them to to get it you know uh, of course it takes god to reveal it but now peter gets it you are the christ the son of the living god because he knew that the messiah was also the son of god in other words that jesus wasn't just a man he was god and so that's a that is an awesome revelation that is the key revelation for salvation you are the christ the son of the living god and by the way, Jesus, the full name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That says it all, you see. Lord denotes his deity. Jesus is the name of his humanity because that was the name he was given when he became a man. Christ is his job, as it were, his office. He's the anointed prophet, priest, and king. All right, so Jesus' answer to Peter. Blessed are you. Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And when he says blessed, it's not like a priest saying, oh, bless you, my child. This word blessed means salvation. You are, in other words, you are blessed with, you are blessed with forgiveness and eternal life. You are saved. All right. In other words, it's believing in Jesus as the Christ the son of the living God, the God-man, that is, is your salvation. Your salvation depends on that revelation. And to those who have an open seeking heart, God will reveal Jesus to them that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But notice, it's because he got that revelation from God that actually Peter is blessed. Now, in this story, Peter is a picture of each one of us. He's, Jesus is using Peter as a, as, a, as a prototype believer. But what happened to Peter is a, is a model for how each one of us is saved. All right? Because um, what Peter, Peter comes into the blessing of God and into the church of Jesus Christ the true church of Jesus Christ through an encounter with Jesus. Jesus is revealed to him as the Christ and the son of the living God. And he embraces that revelation and he confesses that revelation. He confesses that Jesus is Lord. He confesses Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what we would call saving faith. All right. He has 
receive Jesus uh, as 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 the Messiah, as his Savior, and as his God, and that's why this is a picture of his salvation. And then he says, "I say to you also that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." Now this has been badly misinterpreted because, uh, of course. The Roman Catholics, not all of them, but some would say, oh, this is the proof, of course, that Peter is the rock on which the church was built. Well, I'm very grateful that the church is not built on such a shaky foundation. Uh, the word Peter, it's a play on words here. The word Peter is Petros, which means a small stone, small stone. Later in 1 Peter 2, Peter describes himself as a living stone. He describes all believers as living stones. Uh, so he's, he, that's, he, Peter is a Petros, a small stone. But when he says on this rock, this is Petra, which means a massive rock. Okay. And really, Jesus was pointing to himself. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. You see, Jesus is the foundation rock for the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says the same thing, that there is only one foundation that is laid, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus laid his foundation. He is the foundation for us. You know, our foundation for our life is, is not all the biblical doctrines we know. They are important. But ultimately, the reality is Jesus himself. And when we put our trust in Jesus himself, he is our rock. He is our eternal life. In fact, rock is a name for God. God is, is the rock in which we trust. And Jesus is saying, I am the rock. I am the sure foundation on which you can build your life. And if you put your trust in me, you will be blessed with eternal life and you will be built on the, the rock as part of my church, as part of my assembly. The word church is a, that we're going to see in a minute is ecclesia, which means an assembly. And in a sense, we are an assembly of living stones that are built on the rock, who is Jesus Christ. And he will uphold us for all eternity with his righteousness and his life. And we don't stand by our own righteousness. We stand by his righteousness, imputed and imparted to us, upholding us for all eternity. Praise God because he is our rock and we get to the moment we believe on him like peter did we become a living stone full of his life because we are joined and united to the living stone the living rock who is christ our foundation when we are we receive him we are put in him and on him and we receive his life and that is our salvation through christ praise god and so we aren't saved through some kind of church membership thing. We are saved through an encounter with Jesus Christ where we, it is revealed to us who Jesus is. And we embrace that and we confess that. So that's a wonderful picture of salvation. And he says, you are Peter. And on this rock, on Christ, I will build my church. And so here, Jesus is announcing for the first time what's going to happen well he's announcing his church for the first time and 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 really 
This is talking about what's going to happen between his sufferings and his glory. Up to now, they're expecting Jesus at any time to turn on the power, kick out the Romans and establish his kingdom. Uh, they, that's what they were expecting. And, and, and when it, it start, wasn't happening, that's maybe one reason why Judah, Judas started getting disillusioned, because he was in it for the power, you know. And so um, they didn't understand his timing. And that he's going to explain that to them in a minute. But uh, he is announcing now, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, <clears throat> it's, why did he choose Caesarea Philippi? He is establishing his church in the presence of all this pagan religion going on around it. And what he's saying is, my church... He's not talking about the messianic kingdom when he's going to reign as king and all his enemies will be defeated. He is actually putting the church right in the middle of a spiritual warfare where, where there are all kinds of gates of Hades around, all kinds of false religions, false cults, false things going on, all calling to the different human souls to, to follow them and to go into the gates of Hades to their to their death and their destruction and in the midst of all of that spiritual darkness god is putting his church and he is announcing his church into the middle of that and so his church is now to operate and to preach the gospel of who jesus is and in the midst of all these gates of hell he will actually establish his church and so those who hear the gospel and who receive that revelation of, of who Jesus is as the Messiah will, will accept that and become part of his church. But it will be in the presence of his enemies. And he's describing what's going to happen in this time because he's not going to bring his kingdom immediately. And so it's interesting. It's a wonderful promise to us too. The gates of hell will not prevail against it because when we as believers in the part of the church when we die, we will not go through the gates of Hades. We will go to heaven. Praise God. Before the cross, all people who died, even the believers, went down into Hades. The believers went into paradise, into the Abraham's bosom. The unbelievers went to torments. Um, but everyone went down to Hades. It's only through the new birth that um, was made possible through his resurrection that um, our spirits are now made perfect through the new birth. And so when we die, we won't go through the gates of Hades. We will go straight to heaven. Hallelujah. So that's a promise for the church as well. And then he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Literally, it is whatever you bind on earth will be bound, having been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed having been loosed in heaven. In other words, he is authorizing the church in this spiritual warfare, and he has given us authority in his name, for instance, to deal with demons or other such things, evil spiritual powers. He's given us that authority uh, in connection, particularly with preaching the gospel. There's a spiritual warfare, and the church is there to bring forth the harvest of souls uh, in in and given authority in order to fulfill that commission. 
And then in verse 20, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, which is a, a, a funny verse, but um, I've, I've done my best to explain that. But verse 21 is very important now because he is now going to explain them because they are looking forward still to him being the kingly Messiah. And he's going to tell them, no, I've got to suffer first. And in fact, this is, he's also talking about, remember, he's just said about being the foundation. He is going to be the foundation of this new assembly of believers called the church. And how is he going to become the foundation? It's through his death and resurrection. He, see, the foundation is underneath everything. For Jesus to become the foundation for you in all eternity, he had to humble himself and come under you, as it were. He had to humble himself unto death and be buried. And then in his resurrection, he can now lift you up by his resurrection power. So to be the foundation, he had to suffer, die, be buried, and then rise again. And through that process, he became our foundation. And that's what he's saying in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to heaven and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is very important predictions here that he repeats again and again, because this is not what they want to hear. It's not what they're expecting. They're expecting a victorious Messiah. They're, they never really paid much attention to the suffering messiah prophecies and so peter of course tries to straighten out his theology and um he uh, is uh, immediately told off by by jesus get behind me satan um and then jesus i'm going to jump now and just uh bring this to a conclusion by pointing out in verse 27 that he is encouraging them, yes, I am going to suffer and die and rise again, but I will also fulfill the other prophecies of the kingly Messiah. Verse 27, he says, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his work. So he is saying, although I'm, I will suffer, I'll look like I'm in weakness, yet I am coming as the glorious Messiah. You've got to hold both together. And then there's this mysterious verse that some people try and use to say the gospel was false. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So the unbelievers like to say, oh, well, that clearly is a false prophecy. Um, they all, all the apostles have died out and Jesus has still not come in his kingdom or they'll use something or the preterists will say, yeah, well, that just proves that Jesus came in his kingdom in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, destroyed, destroyed by the Roman Empire, Roman armies. But actually it, this is where we're a victim of the chapter break because the, there aren't original chapter divisions. What he's talking about here is the transfiguration. Some are standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. Who are those? Well, let's read on. And we'll find out it's Peter, James, and John. Um, because after six days, 
verse uh, 17, which uh, I think is a little clue that it's after a day is a thousand years. So after 6,000 years on God's calendar uh, will be the kingdom. And, and we are getting close to that. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, this is Mount Hermon. It's got to be the highest mountain in Israel. And he was transfigured before them. And this is the word metamorphosis, which means that which is on the inside is manifested on the outside. Okay. So when we're, it's the same word that talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you are born again in your spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now the job is, the challenge is, that to to let that be revealed on the outside that's transformation metamorphosis like a, a caterpillar metamorphosizes into a, a butterfly and so jesus always had that glory but it was veiled by his flesh but now god allowed his glory to be revealed what god is doing here is he's giving them a promise because he knows on the outside jesus is, is just a man, you know, and he, they are going to see him suffer. They're going to see him die horrific death. And the, the temptation would be to be discouraged and to think he can't be the Messiah. And what God is giving them a prophetic preview of Jesus in his kingdom. He's giving him a prophetic preview that this suffering Messiah is also the glorious Messiah. And this is a picture of the coming kingdom of God. He was transfigured before them. So we see Jesus in his glory. His face shone like the sun and his clothes become white as the light. And that's what Jesus will be like in the kingdom. And Moses and Elijah appear there talking with him. And then Peter. So we see saints in their natural bodies, but we also see saints in, in, a, in a kind of glorified state. And Verse five, while they're still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So the glory of God will be present over the earth in the, in, in the millennium. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. This is the divine endorsement of Jesus as the king of glory. He is the glorious Messiah. And, um, and so the transfiguration is God's prophetic preview of the fact that Jesus is the glorious Messiah and that all of that will come to pass. And, and I, I'm almost done, but I just want to take you to 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter, who was there, of course, gives us his interpretation of the transfiguration, which again, notice what he, Jesus in the plain way has announced that he is the Christ. He has declared that he will fulfill the first, the suffering prophecies of the Christ, but that he will also suffer, fulfill the glory prophecies of the Christ. And that's what he did in at the transfiguration. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, because a lot of Christians don't, you know, 
they they've so focused on the suffering of christ they they don't really have much faith that jesus is coming again in power and glory to judge the earth you know and and he is saying he he is and the power and the coming of our lord jesus christ but he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and he's talking about the transfiguration as we're going to see we were eyewitnesses of jesus in his glory that was god's promise to us that he is also the glorious messiah for he received from god the father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased do you see that so he is thinking of the transfiguration where he saw jesus in his glory and he saw god's authorization of him as the king of glory and then he says and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain and so we have the prophetic word confirmed that's the best translation there's some other translation that that makes gives the impression that the prophetic word and the um the transfiguration are in competition with each other and the prophetic word is 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 more tr trustworthy that's not a good translation what he's saying is the prophetic word in the old testament that i shared with you that the messiah will reign in glory uh, that is con that was confirmed by the transfiguration the transfiguration is the new testament confirmation that the old testament prophecies of the messiah are going to come to pass so you know in our witnessing um for instance with jews the reason orthodox jews will say jesus is not the messiah they will immediately say he can't be the messiah because he didn't establish this kingdom because that's what the messiah does he he sets up his kingdom on the earth and they will say well look at the last two thousand years you know he can't we don't have peace on earth so he can't be the messiah so we need to know how to answer that and and the answer is of course you need to look at all the prophets all that the prophets have prophesied first he had to come and suffer and then he will come again in glory and the truth is israel the key that connects these two is israel because is all the promises and the covenants of god are with israel and these covenants stipulate that um for the kingdom to be established it has to be established through israel so israel has to accept yeshua as their messiah and therefore there has to be a national repentance and a national salvation of israel in order for the kingdom to be established and so he couldn't establish the kingdom immediately because israel as a nation re rejected him that generation did but the bible prophesies that in a future generation in the tribulation all israel will be saved and so israel will come to know that yeshua is the messiah and when they call on him to save them he will return at the battle of armageddon you know jesus said to the jewish leaders in matthew 23 didn't he um you will not see me you behold your house is left to you desolate you will not see me again you leaders of israel will not see me again until you leaders of israel uh, 
say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's until you recognize and receive me as your Messiah King, uh, then I will return to you and I will save you and I will establish my kingdom. So the kingdom required Israel's um, response and acceptance. And so this is why, but he will, ex he will establish his kingdom. Hallelujah. It will happen. But when you pray for Israel, you're also praying for Israel's repentance and salvation. And that's the necessary precursor to the second coming of Christ. And so the center of the action, therefore, is Israel. That's why Satan wants to destroy Israel. That's why anti-Semitism is a satanic spirit, because the whole idea in Satan's plan is to, to destroy Israel, and then he can stop God's promises come to pass. And, and so this this goes to the very heart, really, of of the, the spiritual warfare. And, and so that's how the Jews are misunderstood. Then the church is also misunderstood because they they just see the church coming in and they think that's God's. That means the church has replaced Israel. There's no future for Israel. And of course, that's a wrong interpretation, too, because the fact that Jesus announced his church does not mean he will not establish his kingdom through Israel. He will. Um, but in the meantime, he is saving as many as possible from the different nations. But the remaining prophecies have got to be fulfilled. And they have to be fulfilled literally. And to Israel and through Israel, he must establish his kingdom. So all the messianic prophecies will be fulfilled eventually. And we stand at quite an interesting time now because, you know, we are near the end of the age, I believe, when all the remaining prophecies are, are about to be fulfilled again. The stage is being set. 1948, the stage was set for the um, Israel to be back in the land was necessary for the outworking of, of the remaining prophecies. So hopefully that's given you a, a good overview of the messiahship of jesus he is both god and man and that for your salvation he has to be revealed to you as the christ the son of the living god and then you become part of his church praise god and the gates of hell will not prevail over you and one day soon jesus is going to come in power and glory and he's going to reward us all according to our works and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth forever well, God bless you.